Hey, um, glad you're with us. I'm Daryl, the assistant pastor here. We have been for um, the last little bit, uh, well, actually just starting last week, uh, walking through a vision series together uh, in much of the same way that um, anytime you start a new calendar year, you kind of find yourself looking upon uh, the year that was and thinking about how that was and then uh, anticipating the year to come. You may be the resolution making type, you may not be. Uh, but either way, you always are thinking about uh, kind of what you want for yourself and for your life and for your family. Um, and so as we start a new calendar year, uh, even as your church, it's kind of customary to, um, as your staff and elders and, and leaders, to uh, revisit the vision and the mission of Midtown and what it is that we're doing here um, at Midtown 12 South. How are we engaging with the world? Um, and what that might bring for us in the future, we're kind of looking ahead 10, 15, 20 years down the road um, and really praying a lot kind of uh, in our times together as a staff and, and elders of uh, what is the Lord calling us to, uh, especially on this particular patch of grass that we have here in Nashville. Uh, the book of Proverbs tells us that, um, that without a vision, the people perish. And I think you know that to be sort of intrinsically true about you. Uh, that when you sort of lose sight of things, uh, when, when you forget uh, what you're focused upon, um, it can feel a little bit like death in your souls and in your hearts a little bit. You can feel a little aimless. Um, and so uh, scripture kind of gives us that destination. As Christians, that's, that's given to us. Uh, we know that God is going to make the world new. We know that Jesus is the king and he's coming to reign. Uh, we know that that king is kind and gracious and he grants salvation to his people. And so... Um, you know, for us, that destination is already set, uh, but also at the same time, uh, God is sanctifying us. God is making us holy. God is making us more like his son, Jesus. Uh, we've been given this great commission to go into the world uh, and share the gospel, uh, to make disciples, to teach them, to baptize them, to equip them, uh, to, to give the Holy Spirit to them, to promise that uh, Jesus is going to go with them and with us. Uh, and so in that same vein, Midtown to South, uh, we've drafted uh, kind of a vision and a mission for ourselves as we interact with the world. Um, and we put that in a statement, and it's, that statement is this, uh, that we are being transformed into agents of gospel renewal and revival for the glory of God and the good of Nashville. Uh, that is our hope. Uh, that is what we believe the Lord is calling us to, uh, to spread God's fame and glory throughout the world and also uh, to make Nashville a better place than it was when we found it. Um, and so last week, Elliot spoke to us of what transformation is and what it means, that you are a new creation, you have been made new, um, that God certainly has saved you, that your justification uh, was declared upon you, and that's true. And at the same time, it doesn't feel always, as our experience, uh, that we're new, uh, that we're changed, and that we're different. Um, that, is, that is just the tension, honestly, of living uh, and what theologians call the already and the not yet. Uh, you're already saved, uh, and yet you are being saved. You're already holy, uh, and yet you are becoming holy. You're already home, and yet we're on our way to our home. And so there are these, there's this tension that we all live in in Christianity. And so this morning, we're going to look at uh, the mission statement. We're splitting it up into three parts. We're going to look at the second part of that, um, of what it means to be agents of gospel renewal and revival. Uh, but here's the pastor dilemma when it comes to vision statements. Uh, one, they're never really that good. And two, um, you don't preach those. Uh, it's not scripture, right? Um, we believe that scripture has informed uh, what, we, uh, what we want. 
Uh, but you can never just preach the vision statement uh, as a sermon uh, because that's not preaching the Bible. And we want and long and desire to be a place that always preaches the Bible. Uh, so much so that if we don't do that, tell us um, or fire us. Like you have that power. Um, because we don't want to be a church that does that and you don't want to come to a church that does that. And so when we look at a mission statement and a vision statement, we always have to run it through the lens of what scripture has to say. Um, and so as we spent time uh, kind of crafting this, we've, we've gone back again and again to 2 Corinthians 5, believing uh, that as the Apostle Paul writes um, about us being new creations and uh, ministers of reconciliation and bringing this ministry to the world, um, that there's a lot to learn from that. Um, so as I said, we'll always preach the Bible here. That's our promise to you. Uh, so with that in mind, what does scripture tell us about being agents of gospel renewal and revival? There are two things I believe we'll see, but I'm going to read the passage. Uh, we're in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, I'm going to read 11 through 16, uh, really, yeah, 11 through 17 for us this morning. So if uh, you have a copy of the scriptures, that's what we'll be, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 17. Uh, it'll be on the screens as well. Uh, but let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, knowing that the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but, we are, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to our, uh, to our conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right minds, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, as we, um, we are people who live with anticipation, uh, anticipation of, of what you might be up to, anticipation of what uh, the world's going to throw at us. We're anticipating the snowstorm that might hit. Um, and Lord, with anticipation often comes anxiety uh, and fear and, and terror uh, an unrest. And so God, we ask that uh, whatever uh, is stirring within us, uh, that you would calm that. Uh, Jesus, just as you calm the sea, would you calm our hearts, uh, which might be the greater miracle, uh, that, you, um, that you would calm us, that you would slow us down, if even for just uh, an hour or so, to hear uh, from your word, uh, to be with fellow believers, to sing of your mighty deeds. Uh, Jesus, would you be so kind as to send your Holy Spirit uh, to invade us and invade this room, um, that we would leave here changed and transformed because of the great things that you've done. Uh, it's in your name we do pray. Amen. Uh, so with that scripture in mind, there are two things I believe that we'll see here. Uh, the first is that agents of gospel renewal and revival are loved by God. And secondly, they are living for God. Uh, and then we're going to have a little bit of a, like a so what kind of a practical application of uh, action steps that we can take toward that. Uh, so let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 17 again, and what the Lord has for us on this Lord's day uh, with our first point, loved by God. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church here. Paul loved the church at Corinth. 
Uh, it was one of his babies. He loved every church that he planted. Uh, he loved the church at Corinth. Um, there was a small problem though that the church at Corinth didn't necessarily love him back. Um, they were, um, they were always like, they were just a little unstable. And so it was uh, these folks that Paul referred to as men from the East had come in and had really launched uh, this rebellion almost against the teaching of Paul. And so he is away. Paul's a missionary. Paul's a church planter. So he would come to a city. He would uh, preach the gospel. He would plant a church. And then he would move on to the next area where he was going to preach the gospel and plant another church. And then we move on and on, which isn't uh, a weird strategy. Uh, we do that all the time. Um, so when Paul was away from his church, he would, you know, he would appoint leaders to kind of lead that church and then he would go. Uh, so these men from the East had come in uh, and they were uh, men who were sort of against the message that Paul was preaching. Um, that, it, that salvation through Christ alone, um, to only be concerned about your heart, uh, was a little weird. Um, you had to have some accolades. Uh, these men were always kind of pushing uh, their agenda on folks. And so um, this church was planted and they already had these men from the East coming in, which is hard enough. It's around AD 60-ish. Jesus died, you know, about 30 years before. Uh, so it's a, it's a brand spanking new church work. And so they are in the midst of fighting the long held tradition uh, of Judaism kind of gone wrong. Um, and so they're, they're up against the Jewish fight. They got these men from the East who are coming in. Uh, they're being planted in a highly pluralistic society. Um, you know, America had nothing on the Greeks and the Romans when it came to debauchery, uh, nothing on the Greeks and the Romans when it came to polytheism. Um, so this church is planted in the midst of uh, a world and, and, and literally in the midst of people who didn't necessarily want them there. And so Paul is having to write to these folks to, um, to encourage the church to remain faithful as those in the church were seeking to really sully his reputation. Um, and so that's where verse 11 finds us. And let's look at how Paul responds to this, given that that's the context of where he's working. Uh, he's telling his people as he's writing to them, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Um, Paul doesn't come in showing them the back of his baseball card and why he can be there. He doesn't hand them a cover letter that tells why he's able to do the work that he's doing. Um, he doesn't look at his social media profile and try to persuade them that way. Paul says, I'm coming to you as one who is loved by God and in awe of who he is. Knowing the fear of the Lord, he says, I come to persuade you. Now, fear of the Lord here, as he's talking about, is not necessarily talking about God's judgment and God's wrath, which is certainly something to be afraid of. Uh, he's coming and saying, by saying fear of the Lord, he's saying, there's this holy reverence and awe for who God the Father is that Paul possessed because it was never lost on Paul uh, that God would save someone like him. It was, never, it was never lost on him that Jesus could save someone like him. Because of that, he says, I've come to persuade you to believe the same thing. Paul had this Damascus Road experience, if you know uh, about the life of him, if not, uh, before Paul became a follower of Jesus, before he became a Christian, um, he was a religious fundamentalist zealot. He would have cracked you in the head with the Ten Commandments. Um, he held the coats of people who killed Stephen um, for being a Christian. 
he was a feared man. Paul was a wealthy man. Um, and Paul had a reputation throughout the world. So when he showed up and he's changed and he's different, people would have noticed that. People would have taken hold of the fact that Paul, who used to be this terrorist, is now coming in as this kind of like grace-captured, meek man. He's not weak, but he's coming in as one who has been changed by God. Um, and when that happens, people are always going to talk because agents of gospel and re- of, re- of gospel rather renewal and revival are so different from what the world expects. If we look at verse 12, it shows us that in action. Look at verse 12 together. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. As I gave context for these men from the East who have come in, Paul is saying these men are only interested in what and like how they appear, not necessarily their physical appearance and how they look, like how attractive they are, uh, but like what are, what are their accolades? What are they bringing with them? Um, they're looking at Paul and saying, he has nothing, but look at all that we can bring in. These men were just interested in outward appearance. They were interested in how they looked, uh, how they were thought of in the community. They were interested in how their bank account was padded. Uh, and because they only cared about for that for themselves, that's all they cared about for other people too. So Paul's saying, these men that are coming in actually don't care about you. They sort of care about what you can do for them. What have you done for me lately? Um, their relationship was transactional. It wasn't relational. It wasn't transformational. Y'all, welcome to Nashville. Uh, this is a what have you done for me lately city. If it weren't, Mike Vrabel still have a job. This is a what have you done for me lately city. If it weren't, Taqueria would still be on the street. This is a what have you done for me lately city. This is a, this, you know this, these men from the East here in the scripture are coming in uh, to represent what the world values. And it distilled, it distilled everyone down to simply being designed or de- defined rather by the usual metrics of success. And Paul said, that isn't what Christians do. That isn't what we do. This isn't what I've come to you, dear Corinthians, to do. The agents of gospel renewal and revival first know one massive truth of the universe And that is that they have no business at all being at the Lord's table unless the Lord brings them there. Unless God has brought them there, unless the Lord changes you, you have no business being at his table. Unless God takes mercy on you and shows pity to you. Those who were once his enemy have become his friends. And then he invites you in. Unless that has happened to you, Paul says, You have no business being at his table. And so, of course, we have to lay aside all the things that we've done. We have to lay aside all the things that we think make us who we are because God doesn't care about those things. Identity, Paul is saying, is is received and it is not achieved. And if you want the world to think you're crazy, believe that. That identity is given to you of all the things that that make Christianity kind of weird. This might be the weirdest one. That there is nothing I can do that, that brings me up the ladder to make God love me anymore if I'm connected to Jesus. And there's nothing I can do that, that pushes me down the ladder 
that I simply am his. That is the truth for you this morning if you're a Christian, that God looks at you with affection and adoration. God looks at you and calls you his. And you've done nothing to earn that, and you can do nothing to lose that. It has nothing to do with what we do. It has to do with everything that Jesus has done. And for a world that is watching, y'all, that is, that's crazy. Um, Paul is telling us here, it is the heart that matters. That these men who have come in and said that outward appearance is what they look at, God is always looking at the heart. Now, Paul didn't make this up. God said this way back in 1 Samuel, uh, when the nation of Israel wanted a king. Israel was a theocracy, meaning that God uh, called the shots and God directed their steps. Uh, they didn't have a government. Uh, their government was God. Uh, and so everything that they did, and, and they didn't move without God telling them to. Um, but they looked around and they saw all these other nations had kings. They kind of wanted one. They got a little scared because these other nations were kind of rising up and they were a lot stronger and bigger. Uh, Israel was you know, kind of this budding nation. And they didn't have a ton of uh, forces to protect them. And so they thought that a king would give them that. And so they start demanding that God gives them a king. And God is like, are you sure that that's what you want? Because if you have a king, you have to pay a salary. And if you have a king, you have to fund his lifestyle. And he's going to take your money. He's going to take your daughters for himself. He's going to take your sons and put them in the military. Uh, he's going to build a palace. He's going to build an army. You're going to have to pay taxes, which is the greatest injustice of all. He's going to make, you're going to have all these things that are not going to be true of you, that are true of you now. They're not going to be true of you then. And they're like, sure, just give us a king. Like, we appreciate all that you've done for us. We'll still listen to you. But we need, we need somebody we can look at. We need somebody we can touch. We need somebody we you know, kind of put our hands on and, and, and make us feel safe that's tangible. And Israel's like, give us this king. And we want that king to be Saul. Because he's tall. And he's handsome. So give us, give us Saul. He's uh, head and shoulders above the rest. Um, give us Saul because he, like, he looks like a king. And God says again, directly to them, the Lord doesn't look at outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. And they still ignored it. And so they made Saul king. And Saul, who had a jawline like Jack Reacher, who had a wingspan like LeBron, he became their king. But his heart was wicked, as wicked as the day is long. Well, this is what humanity always does, right? Give us, like, give us that we need to look the part. Um, if we're to impress anyone, we need to appear as if we have it all together. That we have all our ducks in a row. That our calendar looks pretty on Google Calendar. We have to have it all together. And Paul says that God doesn't give one rip about that. He cares about your heart. What matters to God is you're standing before him. Because you can impress or disappoint everyone around you. But God says, you're standing before me is what matters. That it's okay to be tall, Derek Saban. It's okay to be tall. It's okay to be attractive. It's okay to be fit. It's okay uh, to take care of yourself. It's okay to want to have a great family. We're encouraged for all those things for as much as we can handle them. We can't make ourselves taller. We can make more money. You just have to avoid the temptation to believe that that is what makes you who you are. Right? Your church, your pastors 
We want you to go forward into the world and do whatever it is God is calling you to do, assuming that that work is legitimate. So if you go and make a bunch of money, make a bunch of money, give a bunch of it away. Give some of it to us. Like go and do that. Go and make friends. Go build a social network. Go do all those things. But you gotta, you gotta avoid this temptation to believe that it defines you. The agent of renewal, of gospel renewal and revival consults God before taking a promotion. That's gonna look crazy to the world. Because if that promotion means stepping on the backs of poor people to get there, then you don't take it. If your job doesn't truly contribute to the flourishing of folks around you, if it tells you to cut corners, if it tells you to cook the books, then the Christian doesn't do that job. The agent of gospel renewal and revival doesn't go against the word of God and they don't go against their conscience. Paul is saying these men that care about their outward appearance, that's all they care about. They're just trying to get ahead. They don't care about you. They don't care, certainly don't care about the things of the Lord. Uh, this is what Martin Luther uh, said during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, if you know anything about Martin Luther, um, if it didn't happen, we'd all be Catholic. And so he went to the Catholic church uh, in 1517, he, he nails his grievances on the door of this church, um, listing all these things that the Catholic church has gotten wrong about Christianity. He dared to say that justification comes by faith alone, uh, that you actually don't need to go through a priest to get to God. And the Catholic church didn't like that. Um, and so he's, he's brought before this council, the Diet of Worms, Spelled like worms. The diet of worms. I was like, if it's a diet of worms, I don't want to be a Christian. I'm not eating that. Um, so he comes before this council and they're calling him on the carpet. And they're like, Martin Luther, we know you're teaching. Um, Y'all, at, at this time, I, try to put yourself back in 1500s. You didn't take on the Catholic church. They had all the money. They had all the power. They had the government in their back pocket. You didn't take them on. Nobody took them on and won. And so Luther is going to them and he's saying, they're like, Luther, this thing you're saying that grace alone comes through faith alone in Christ alone, as he's offered up in the scripture alone for the glory of God alone. Martin, you have to stop saying that. Like the Catholic church, y'all, if you're Catholic, I'm sorry. They just cared about their pocketbook. What they were doing, they were selling indulgences. If you sinned, you could come toss your money into this cup. And then they would say like your dead aunt would get out of purgatory. And then they built these massive buildings. They were using guilt to fund their empire. And Luther is coming and he's saying, you don't need the Catholic church to assuage your guilt. You can take your guilt to the Lord and he will take that and throw it away from you as far as the East is from the West and he'll forgive your sins. And that's how you're justified. And the Catholic church is like, shut it, buddy. Like we don't, that's not what we do here. And Luther didn't want to blow up the Catholic church. He wanted to reform it. So I would call it the Reformation. He was trying to reform the church. And remember to take on the Catholic church was akin to charging into hell with a water pistol. You didn't win. But Luther stood up before the Diet of Worms and he says this to them in his, probably his most famous impassioned speech. He said, unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything I've taught for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. 
To go against one's conscience is neither right nor safe. The agent of gospel renewal and revival is the one who knows that he is loved by God. And because of that, because he knows that he can go and confess his sins straight to the source, he can have a clear conscience. And you know, a clear conscience in the world that we live in is something the world can't handle. Paul says in verse 13, I know I look crazy, but if I'm crazy, it's for God. If I look crazy to you, it's for God. And God can handle my crazy. And kind of what I'm saying is a little crazy. But if I look crazy, it's for God. But if, in my, if I'm in my right mind, then it's for you. If I'm making sense, it's for you. This might sound crazy, and if so, God can call me crazy. But the things that Paul was saying, the things that the gospel holds out for us, our heart actually wants those things. So Paul's saying, I'm in my right mind when I'm speaking to you because you want this. That God can handle your crazy. And that you don't need these men coming in and telling you that it's about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. And then you can rest. And then you can have freedom. You want to see your marriages change. If you can grab a hold of that, like your house will be completely different. Because you're not looking to your spouse to validate who you are. You want to see your friendships change, do this. Because your friendships and your marriage they're not intended to bear the weight of that. So when you put that weight on them, of course they're going to collapse. But Jesus can handle that. And if we put that on Jesus, then we can see everything else in our life flourish. The Christian knows that he is loved by God. The agent of gospel renewal and revival knows that they are loved by God. And secondly, they are living for God. If we look at verse 14, um, y'all, I think if we could capture really what verse 14 is saying, it would it would transform you. Um, because what verse 14 does, it presents the motivation for being an agent of gospel renewal and revival. It says this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. I'm looking at 15, and he died for all that those who might live, those who live rather might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul is saying that everything we do, our motivation, the reason our feet hit the floor in the morning is this, that the love of God controls us and compels us. That we have found something in Jesus so beautiful that we can look at the world and say nothing else compares to what I find in the arms of Jesus. That is the difference between Christianity and every other religion, even the religions that we make up. That if I work hard enough, if I do enough, I'll arrive. If I'm just enough, then life will make sense. If I know myself inside and out, if I throw enough cash at my counselor and we just figure this out, then everything will be right and I'll be enough. Paul's saying, it's the love of Christ and the love of God that controls your life. It's the love of God that compels you to live in the way that you live. That the Christian doesn't, they're not motivated to go out and earn what Jesus did for them. They go out because of what Jesus did for them. 
And because they are loved by God in the way in which they are, they are compelled to live as a follower of Christ would live. And Paul says the love of Christ is so compelling that it controls him. Theologians have called this the velvet handcuffs of faith, that you are now bound to Jesus and yet you wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You are bound to Jesus that he's the controlling motivation of your life because of what he has done through his life and death and burial and resurrection. And you have looked at his life and you said that I want what he did to count for me, that you have taken your deeds, those good works that you think you've done and the terrible things that you know you've done. And you throw those in a pile and you light them on fire and you run to Jesus. That the love of Christ will compel you to do such a thing. And that's going to look weird and it's going to look crazy and it's not going to make a lot of sense. But when this love of Jesus is applied to our heart through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, it is the only way that we can be emboldened to fight against our life of sin and to seek his plan of sanctification for us, to lay your life and your deadly doing down at the feet of Jesus and walk in the kindness and the mercy that he has for us. That through your union with Christ, y'all, through being connected to him and his life and in his death and his burial and his resurrection, that Christ has achieved for us what we could never achieve for ourselves. And that's making us right before God. That's declaring us righteous and making us just before him. That he was the atonement and the propitiation for our sins when he died on the cross. And when he cried out, it is finished. It closed the chasm that lay between you and him. And Jesus came to your dead and lifeless bones and revived you and brought you back to life that he might make you wholeheartedly ready and able to live for him, our confession says. That it compels you to live and to move and to, and to look differently throughout the world. And the, the world and the flesh and the devil are are going to fight against us at every turn, but we look back at what Jesus has done for us and we go forward in that, that we would live, as verse 15 says, for him for who your sake has died and was raised. And that we would live in verse 15, as it says, no longer living for ourselves. That friends, this is what renewal and revival is. This is the good news of the gospel, that King Jesus has come and is transforming the world and he's bringing us along with him. And that you would be emboldened to march into all those places where you live and work and play uh, and love all those places back to life for the glory of God the Father. And that's what's gonna change this city. That's what's gonna change your homes. That's what's gonna change you. That's what's gonna change your outlook on your life. And that's what's gonna change your jobs. It's gonna change your hobbies. That if we can grasp what verse 14 and 15 are saying, and ask the Holy Spirit to, to apply this to our hearts as the scripture, as we have searched it and it searches us, that we can give our lives over to God and see what he does with those. So what do we do with all this? This is a lot of information. This is a lot, Paul, that you're asking for us, renewing and reviving the world around us. Where do we start with something that big? Uh, and this is probably the part where I tell you to go to your jobs and do your jobs differently, knowing that Jesus goes with you, and that's certainly true, or go to your school and see what he does there, or your social, social circles. Um, it's not less than that. It's actually what Elliot's gonna preach about next week, so I don't wanna take all that from him. Uh, but it's certainly more than that, because we need you here, too. It's often easy to, to think, 
we'll just go out there and then that's where we can impact change. And that's true. And we impact change here. And so agents of gospel renewal and revival means that you let people see you and know you. And that you open your eyes to see and to know others, to not judge as the world judges, but to use holy eyes to attune to the world in front of you and to see your own hearts rightly. And that can really only be done in the midst of community. It can only be done by giving people and daring enough to let people in and see who you are. And also trusting and the confidence that you have to let other people know who they are. And as your church, we want to offer that for you. Uh, and as your church, we have flung the door wide open for this, uh, for this to be a reality for you. And we want you to walk through them. Uh, this is why we hired Ashley Jacobs, our director of ministry, who you heard from earlier. She is developing places for all of us to play, places to be known, places to be seen, and places to be transformed. The women's ministry team has this women's retreat coming up to provide you this very thing. At the very least, it's a day away from your kids. But that probably should be the reason you go. But it could be a reason. Um, that on March 2nd, and you can save that date now, Ashley and that team um, that she oversees are curating a venue for renewal and revival in your own hearts. That Lou Alice Rogers and Ashley Cook are going to come and, and lead us in, in spiritual direction. And you get to have a day where you just focus on your relationship with the Lord and other people. And that doesn't happen very often. And so we want to offer that to you. There's a mom's lunch coming up where the, moms, the, ministry, the 12 South Moms Ministry team has seen that small groups with moms are so important. They're so vital. They're actually going to turn this room into a cafeteria and you're going to come and eat in here because we believe that it's so true. That for young professionals, we meet and gather all over the city doing trivia and playing pickleball and going to Penn's Mechanical and we meet in this room and we talk through scripture and introduce ourselves and engage with one another because we need that. Um, do I want to say this? I do want to say this. We have a small groups ministry. I'm given to hyperbole, but this isn't one of those moments. That's hyperbolic, I guess. You've been saying that. We have a small groups ministry that any other church in America would love to have. Because it has like 600 people in it. And then there's a wait list of 600 people. There's 1,200 people who want to be in small groups and half of them get to be. And that's a great problem to have and it's also a problem we can solve. Because what we're going to ask you is that you would consider opening your home uh, and facilitating one of these groups. Uh, Lisa would love that. Look, if you hate people in your house, don't do it. Again, we could talk about why you hate people in your house, but don't do that. But if you think maybe I could open up my house, I could facilitate a discussion around scripture, um, and the hangups are always like, I don't have enough theological knowledge. There are about 500 nerds in this room who would share with you, probably without you asking, theological knowledge. We can teach you that. What we can't teach is hospitality. What we can't teach um, is giving you a house for people to meet. We would love for that, for that wait list to go away. Look, there's not, there's not room for more people in here, but for some reason we want more people in here. So we'll figure that out too. But we know that as gospel, as agents of gospel renewal and revival, it's about letting yourself 
be known and letting people see you and speak into those places and bring the Holy Spirit to you. And, and you'll see your life change and your life transformed. That's one way. I, I would say that's one A. The other way is that you serve. Um, scripture really can't be more clear about that. Um, and I'm, I'm probably the worst at it. Um, that Jesus Christ came to serve his people. And so for some reason, I don't know why I did, God has made it that when you pour out of yourselves, when you give of your time and your tithe and your talent, um, that you're transformed by that. And the ROI on that is insane, but that's not why we do it. Um, we do it because Jesus himself served us. And, and I'll go to my grave saying this, y'all. Kid Town's the best place to do this. Um, thanks, man. Uh, because when the disciples were trying to keep a crowd of people away from Jesus, because, because they were bothered by him, they were inconvenienced, he stopped them and he said, yeah, you can keep those, you know, those weird adults away from me. But you let the kids come to me. Let the children come to me. Because that's what the kingdom of God is. That's what the kingdom of God is like. If you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, look at how they trust. If you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, look at how they play. Look at how they don't care what you think about their emotions. Look at how they don't listen. It's probably my own kid. Jesus didn't say that. He says, look at, look at them and you'll be changed. And y'all, there is, it's like the belly of the Titanic down there. There are so many kids down there and they're doing such great work. And my friend Aaron Frost, he and I were texting the other day. I was like, man, tell me about why you love working in Kid Town. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was so beautiful, I screenshotted it. Um, but that his life when he sees these children learning the scriptures, it changes him and it also changes them. And he has said, and he's right over there, you can ask him. He's like, that's how I've gotten to know people at church is by serving down there, by rubbing elbows with folks. The world has beaten the child out of you. The world has told you you have to grow up. The world has told you again, if you want love, you have to go earn it. And C.S. Lewis says there's going to come a day when you'll be old enough to believe fairy tales again. But that doesn't come unless you're spending time around kids. And, and we have a training in two weeks. We'd love to have you down there. It's going to cost you your time. I don't know what to tell you about that. Everything costs you your time. Um, it's not a waste of time. I can tell you that. Um, you already know that anything worthwhile is going to cost us our time. Um, but let me tell you this. You don't need a, a therapist or a counselor to knock the rust off your souls. Um, listen to a kid pray. Listen to a kid read scripture. Listen to a kid sing. You'll go down there and see how they tap their Bibles and, and how they sing to Jesus. And if you aren't good with kids, again, you can learn that. It's not that hard. I have two of them. I'm terrible at it. But you can learn it. Um, but if you hate kids, don't go down there. Again, we'll talk about why you hate kids. That's not an option for you, but uh, we probably don't want you down there if you don't like them. Um, 
you can serve us by greeting at the doors. We need folks running sound. You can, you can serve by running through slides. We've got coffee upstairs that people need to make. Those are all ways in which you can get involved because what often happens, and you know who you are, um, the folks will leave here and say, it's, it's too hard to serve. I don't know where I can get my hands dirty. So we just told you. So if you say it now, you're a liar. You know where liars go. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, we long to, to give you opportunities um, to see the Lord transform and change. We believe it starts here and then it bleeds out into the world. But we don't trip over dead bodies to get across the sea, right? To minister to the Lord. You minister to the ones that are in front of you and then it goes out from there. And the Lord, the Lord will transform you and we long to go with you as he does, as he makes us into agents of gospel renewal and revival for the glory of God and for the good of Nashville. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, you are uh, so good to us. Um, even now as we sit and ponder um, all the great things that you're going to do um, through Midtown 12 South, uh, through her people, um, how this world will be impacted and changed, how the kingdom is going to push back the darkness and bring light to corners of Nashville that's never had light before. Jesus, we trust and know that all those things are going to happen. Um, and we, we believe you when you tell us it starts here. Uh, so Jesus, would you, uh, if you would have us, uh, and if you would be so kind uh, to impress upon our hearts uh, where we might serve one another, uh, where we might um, let ourselves be known and loved, knowing that we are known and loved by you, uh, and because of that, uh, you let other people love us too because it shows us who you are. So Jesus, would you be so kind as to uh, break the chains of, of bondage uh, and fear uh, and let us move forward um, knowing that it is you who is leading us. Uh, Lord, keep us in step with you, we do pray. It's in your name, amen.